You're listening to episode 21 of Rainbow Baby, a podcast documenting a journey of pregnancy after loss. I'm your host, Taylor Bates. In May 2018, my first child, Ellis, was stillborn at 31 weeks for unknown reasons. In the depths of unimaginable grief, my husband Hunter and I knew we wanted to try again. Since then, we've experienced new pregnancies and more loss. We're still hoping for our rainbow baby, which is a baby born subsequent to a miscarriage, stillbirth, TFMR, or the death of an infant from natural causes. I want to share my story with you because life after pregnancy loss can be so isolating. You'll also hear conversations with others who've walked this path before me. This episode is a documentation of weeks 12 through 16 of my current pregnancy. I talk about my decision whether or not to use an at-home Doppler, learning how to be a better advocate for myself at prenatal visits during pregnancy after loss, and consulting with several doctors about VBAC versus repeat cesarean and what we ended up deciding. I also share what Ellis's second still birthday was like and how we've started to connect more with our rainbow baby. Here's the episode. Hi friends, it's been a while since I've checked in and given you an update on my own rainbow baby journey. Um, It's been about a month since I gave an update on my pregnancy. Um, I've had a really great last few episodes interviewing um, new friends in the community, Um, but a lot has happened personally during this past month. It's all been good for the most part, Um, but I just wanted to catch you up. So the last episode that I recorded, which was an update about my pregnancy, was episode 17, and I had just visited a perinatal specialist, and they did a ton of um, blood work on me, and we went through all of our history. It was was pretty overwhelming, to be honest, Um, but everything, you know, was good for the most part. Um, and I've since gotten that blood work back and it came back normal. They were testing for blood clotting disorders, which I honestly just couldn't remember if I'd been tested before. I am pretty sure I had been at my fertility clinic, but I've been tested for so many things at this point that it's just hard to keep track of it all. So the doctor was curious whether, you know, Ellis's stillbirth could have been related to a blood clotting disorder. And of course, wanted to check that for our current pregnancy and it all came back clear which is ultimately good but also just leaves us kind of still you know with that mystery of like why why has this journey been so difficult for us um and I have just once again settled on the fact or or the reality that we probably won't ever get an answer for Ellis's stillbirth or or why this journey has been so hard The good news is that that means I won't need to be on any blood thinner injections, which was going to be the doctor's recommendation for the rest of the pregnancy. So at this point, I'm only on one medication, which just seems like a miracle compared to the beginning of the pregnancy when I was on so many different pills and injections. Right now I'm just taking Synthroid because my thyroid was slightly elevated um, before I got pregnant and they just wanted to regulate that, um, but ultimately it's not it's not a big issue. And of course, taking prenatal vitamins. Um, so one kind of big thing that happened that caused 
quite a bit of um, anxiety for me several weeks ago was I had a scheduled sonogram and appointment with my regular OB. And at this point in the pregnancy, I'm seeing her every four weeks and I'm also seeing the perinatal specialists every four weeks. So it balances out to about seeing someone every two weeks, right? Um, which especially in the beginning of the pregnancy in the first trimester was really reassuring to be able to see the baby so often. Um, so when I was with my fertility clinic, I was seeing the baby weekly up until week 10. So my OB has been very supportive. Um, she was the one who started with us on this journey after Ellis was stillborn. We transferred care to her because I just wanted a new doctor and um, she's really our advocate and it's really rooting for us. Um, but there was kind of a disconnect with her staff at a recent appointment. So I'd gone in, I was really looking forward to the ultrasound, to seeing the baby, because like I'd said, it'd been several weeks since I'd seen him. And at that point, I still wasn't feeling him move because it was so early. So I just really needed that reassurance that, you know, basically just that he's alive. Um, and so, um, side note, I also want to say that during that time period, I did order a Doppler, a fetal heart Doppler. Um, and it was one that was recommended by several other um, lost moms that I've been connected with. And it actually came to my house, it arrived, and before I even opened it, I kind of had this thought of like, I don't think this is going to be good for me, um, because it arrived actually um, after I had seen the perinatal specialist, and they told me that I have an anterior placenta, which is normal and fine, but that means it can be harder to, to find the baby's heartbeat um, because the placenta is on the front of my belly. And especially as a novice, I have no, you know, nursing background or, or medical background. I have never used a Doppler myself before. So I just worried that if I tried to use the Doppler and wasn't able to find the heartbeat, that would just really uh, freak me out and cause me a ton of anxiety and, um, I just knew that that was more of a reality because of the position of my placenta. So I just didn't want to deal with that potential anxiety of not being able to find the baby's heartbeat, even if he was doing perfectly fine. Um, so I ended up sending the Doppler back. Um, and I know that this is kind of a controversial thing, especially for lost parents, um, because it's something that, um, especially in the third trimester, it can be problematic if you do use the Doppler and you hear the heartbeat and you think, oh, everything's fine, when in reality, there might be something wrong. And so you really should have gone into your doctor or your midwife. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of my doctor, my OB in particular, recommended not to use a Doppler. She said in the beginning, you know, when, whenever you're nervous, just call us, come in, we'll check on things. Um, so I, I feel good about that decision. I'm glad I kind of had the experience of, of ordering the Doppler and really thinking about it and then ultimately making the decision not to use it. But that's just my personal choice. I know a lot of other friends 
um, like Shannon Pike, who I interviewed on this podcast, she used it during her second trimester just to have peace of mind. Um, and that really helped her. And then in her third trimester, she started just solely relying on kick counting um, and not the Doppler. So I think that's a really good approach too. So back to where I was, um, I was looking forward to this ultrasound because I hadn't seen or heard the baby in a while, in several weeks. And I go to the appointment, they do some blood work. Um, I have to fill out a bunch of paperwork because it's kind of my pregnancy intake appointment, I guess. I had to essentially like sign my life away, you know, for um, a scheduled C-section and um, make, make a deposit on that. So all of that was kind of a little bit overwhelming. Um, and then I get to the end of the appointment when I'm supposed to have the ultrasound and the tech comes out and says that she cannot do the scan. And I asked her why. And she said, it's because I'd already had an equivalent scan at the perinatal specialist a few weeks before. And I was really confused because my doctor, my OB had said that she was sending me to these specialists you know, for one, just to receive the extra level of care because I am a high-risk pregnancy based on my history of stillbirth, but also so that I could get more peace of mind and have essentially double appointments, double scans, double opportunities to see the baby. So it didn't make sense to me why they wouldn't be able to do a scan since I'd already had one at the specialist. And unfortunately, I think we just had a miscommunication um, because I told her, you know, can I just have a scan for peace of mind just to know the baby's okay? And she said no um, and didn't really give me much more of an explanation. Um, so I I left her extremely frustrated. Um, and it's already, you know, anxiety-inducing enough to kind of the buildup to a scan in my experience in pregnancy after loss. Um and so it's then to not have that like relief of knowing that the baby's okay was just really frustrating. Um, and it was also the very first appointment that I drove myself to without Hunter. Um, and so I was already kind of a little bit on edge just being by myself during because of COVID. Hunter's not allowed to go inside with me to my appointments. So um, I ended up talking with one of the billing specialists afterward and um, asked her if there was any reason why I couldn't have another scan because I'd already had one at the specialist. And she said, no, you know, it, it all just, you get billed the same way you, you pay your copay. Um, and so I asked her, well, then why did my scan have to get scheduled? And she just kind of looked at me like, I don't know. Um, so yeah, I just, I left extremely frustrated. Um, and the next day I wrote my OB an email because unfortunately she wasn't in the office that day. And I had an appointment scheduled with her for the following week to, as a follow-up. Um, so I emailed her briefly and told her what had happened and just asked for clarification. Um, just because I felt like she had told me one thing and then this tech was telling me another thing. And, um, right away I get a phone call after I send the email from the sonogram tech 
and she apologized and said that if she would have known, you know, how important that was to me, she would have just done um, heart tones. So just let me hear the, the baby's heartbeat. And I was like, well, of course. Yeah. All I wanted to know was that the baby was okay. And I didn't, I didn't need like a full scan. And so she, she went on to explain more in depth that on her, um, on her side of things, I was scheduled for this particular ultrasound, um, you know, for where I was in the pregnancy. And that, I guess there was a conflict with my insurance that because, I'd already had that particular scan done at the specialist. She couldn't repeat it, Um, which makes complete sense. I wish we would have just been able to communicate that in the office and I could have heard the baby's heartbeat. No big deal. So I learned a lesson um, too, just about kind of um, needing to really advocate for myself um, and not just kind of be a pushover when I know that, um, something isn't right and, um, and just ask for more of that clarification. And I know she was in a rush. They had a ton of patients that she was trying to see. So I get it. But, um, so at the next appointment with my OB, she handled it so well. She first thing had me listen for the baby's heartbeat um, which was great and reassuring. And she apologized for the um, misunderstanding and said that it absolutely wasn't my fault. Um, and that from here on out at every appointment, she herself would use the Doppler so that I could hear the heart, the baby's heartbeat. So that just gave me a ton of reassurance and um, made me feel like, okay, it's going to be all right. Um, Because I definitely left feeling frustrated with the staff, you know, and just worrying about honestly staying with them um, to receive care because I just know I need kind of more reassurance just based on everything that I've been through. And I know that as I get further along in the pregnancy, I might get more anxious and will just need that extra reassurance. So in the appointment, I also talked with her about... um, my experience visiting the perinatal specialist, which she had referred me to. So she wanted to hear about how that went. And in that appointment, we had talked about, um, a VBAC, which is a vaginal birth after cesarean versus a a scheduled cesarean, which my current OB, that's the only thing she can offer because of her hospital's policy. But that's also what she really recommends for me and believes is the best for my situation. Um, And so the perinatal specialist, we asked him and he gave us a ton of information and statistics about um, VBAC and repeat cesarean. And one thing we didn't really know about are the risks with repeat cesarean, which I talked a lot about in episode 17, mainly the placenta accreta and that risk of um, of problems with the placenta with each um, subsequent C-section. And of course, with VBAC, the big risk is uterine rupture, which can be catastrophic for the mother and the baby. Um, So this perinatal specialist was kind of pushing us toward a VBAC, which was, of course, contrary to what my OB can offer. So um, I asked my OB in in this follow-up appointment if um, she could recommend another OB who I could talk to about VBAC, which she'd offered several times before. And she said, you know, my feelings will not be hurt. I just want you to feel comfortable with your decision. 
Um, and so she actually referred me to the same, um, practice that I had been with for Ellis's birth. So with him, I had seen this group of midwives and they're connected with a a group of OBs at the same hospital where I gave birth to Ellis. And so she referred me to one of the OBs who I had actually um, met. She was on call the day after Ellis was born. So I was hesitant about going back there because um, I just, yeah, there, there are so many kind of emotional triggers with that physical space. There's just reminders of that trauma that happened there. And then I also had um, a difficult follow-up appointment with the midwife who had been on call when Ellis was stillborn. And just a few weeks later at my follow-up, she forgot that he died. And that was just kind of an extra level of, of trauma, just feeling like neglected or unseen, uncared for. And of course, she was horrified that she had forgotten and immediately remembered once I reminded her. But after that, I just really didn't want to go back to that practice. Um, So considering, though, that they are the most feedback-friendly hospital and practice in town, um, it made sense to go and consult with them about a potential VBAC because I also remembered my family saying that the OB who performed my original C-section with Ellis, she said that she had done the incision in a way that was very conducive to a vaginal birth in the future. And because my C-section wasn't an emergency with Ellis, that also, you know, was, was a better, better for a future birth. So, um, I made an appointment with that doctor for a consultation, and then I also made an appointment with another doctor who was recommended by my fertility specialist, another OB, um, who was also very VBAC friendly in town. So actually the week of Ellis's second birthday, I had three appointments, (laughs) which was kind of intense, um, but I also, I did that knowingly, that was my choice, and I, I knew I could handle it. So um, I also wanted to have all the appointments back-to-back just so I could kind of remember, you know, each one and kind of compare them more easily. So my first appointment was another appointment with a group of specialists we're seeing, and that time I saw a new doctor who was amazing. We just, I loved her, and I talked with her about this whole VBAC versus repeat cesarean. And she said that regardless of my choice, the main issue on their end is that they're, they're going to recommend that I give birth before she said, I think 37 or 38 weeks because of my history of stillbirth. So when you've had one stillbirth, your odds of having another one slightly increase and the rate of stillbirth increases after that 37, 38 weeks in pregnancy. So she said, yeah, regardless of my choice, that's when they would recommend to my, whoever my OB is, um, to birth the baby. But she did, um, basically an anatomy scan at that point. I think I was 
15 or 16 weeks and um, spent a lot of time. It was the day before Ellis's birthday, which I told her about, and she was so sweet and so supportive. Um, and I've decided, you know, every every sonogram tech or every every new person that I interact with, I'm just going to gently tell them, you know, when it feels right about our history, if, if they don't already know, just so that they can be sensitive to that. And she handled it so well. Gave me like 20 pictures printed out from the ultrasound. It was great. Um, so reassuring. Everything looked good to her. Um, and so I had another appointment back to back right after that with this, um, other OB who my fertility specialist recommended, who's VBAC friendly. Um, and I actually wasn't able to meet with the OB. Instead, I had to meet with her nurse practitioner. Um, and she was really, um, really sweet and supportive and mentioned that she'd had a previous patient several years ago who'd had a stillbirth and that kind of changed her perspective on everything. So she's, she just said, you know, if there's ever a time where you're concerned, you can just come in anytime, call us and we'll do, we'll do a scan or do the Doppler. So that was nice and reassuring. And we talked about, of course, VBAC. And she said that their practice would um, induce a VBAC at that 37, 38 week mark. Um, And that was something that I hadn't really thought about. I guess it, it kind of made sense that the specialist had said I would have to give birth at 37, 38 weeks. Um, and then to have her repeat that, but say, you know, that they would do an induction. That was kind of a new, new perspective to me. Cause everything I've read about VBAC is like, for the most part, you know, you try to go into labor naturally. Um, and sometimes that might be at 40 weeks or at your due date or, or even later. Um, so it was becoming clear that no one wants me to go, you know, to 40 weeks because of that stillbirth risk. So, um, our appointment was kind of brief. And, um, one thing that kind of turned me off about the experience was the, the waiting room and kind of their intake procedures were just like really kind of old and antiquated. And I know that's not at all what's most important, you know, ultimately if you're receiving good care, that's all that matters. But, um, I know I'm going to be spending a lot of time in this place, especially in the third trimester. I'm going to be there weekly and it, I want it to be an environment that I feel comfortable and safe in. And, um, they, it was kind of weird. It was creepy. It was like, you know, because of COVID because of the pandemic, they only had Um, They had a limit on how many people could be in the waiting room at any given time. So it was standing room only. And then there was, everyone else had to wait outside. They only had one light on in the waiting room. So it made just this creepy vibe. Um, And I had to stand up the whole time while doing my paperwork, um, which took about 30 minutes. Um, And the other practices that I've been seeing, um, the specialist and my OB, all of their paperwork at this point is online. So usually like before an appointment, I fill out everything online. So it just felt a little bit, um, outdated, I guess. And then, you know, there was no natural light in the waiting room or any of the offices, which again, I know that's not most important, but 
it just you want to feel you want to feel comfortable in that environment because it's already anxiety inducing um so they took me back into this room this tiny room and it was like a freezer box and the nurse practitioner basically did all the same paperwork verbally filled it out that I had just filled out myself so it felt a little bit redundant and um again not that that really matters but um, my kind of overall impression was like, maybe that's not the place for me. Um, and so the next day, um, I'll, I'll share a little bit about Ellis's second birthday, um, which was ended up just being such a special day. I was so relieved because compared to last year, which was his first birthday, last year was just so heavy the whole month of May and leading up to that day. And this year I just felt this kind of peace and lightness and almost a joy of like looking forward to his birthday and just celebrating him. And Hunter and I had planned to go to Enchanted Rock where we had spread his ashes after he was stillborn. And it's a, it's a beautiful, sacred, natural um, park in Texas, about an hour and a half from San Antonio where we live. And we drove up in the morning and um, I had just published um, my last podcast episode with Alyssa Christensen and both of our babies were both stillborn on that day. She's the only other lost mom I've met who um, shares that stillbirth day, which was a really beautiful, special episode. Um, and so we climbed up Enchanted Rock and it's a, it's a pretty easy hike, so I didn't I knew I'd, I've done it before. I knew what to expect. And I actually climbed up it while I was pregnant with Ellis too. So it was fun to take his little brother up there. Um, and yeah, we just spent time in nature and, um, time with Ellis with each other, me and Hunter, and, um, then came back down and drove back in. And as we drove up to our house, um, we were listening to, this video that a friend had shared that day the google um animation was the singer who does the ukulele version of somewhere over the rainbow and it was his birthday that day um and he's he's since passed away and i'm going to try to pronounce his name it's israel kamako Wole. And so we were listening to this beautiful song, which just always moved me so much. And I was had tears as we were approaching our driveway. And then I see all of these rainbows drawn in chalk on our sidewalk around our house. And oh my gosh, it was just the most magical moment. Such a beautiful surprise. One of our friends had coordinated for a whole bunch of different friends and family members to come and um, write messages and draw rainbows for Ellis's birthday on our ho- around our house. And then the whole rest of the day, people just stopped by with flowers and cards and gifts. And it just felt like his spirit was absolutely alive. And if anything, it was more of a, much more of a celebration than it was last year. And I just felt so grateful for that because it, it affirmed that people are not going to forget about Ellis, which is 
you know, kind of one of my deep-seated fears is that over time people will forget about him. Um, and so that just was so such a special day. And I, I will share that by the end of the day, like around 10 p.m. or so, we were um, just kind of reflecting on the day and a friend had written this beautiful poem right after Ellis had died and um, she'd waited to give it to us because she wasn't sure when the right moment was. And so Hunter read the poem and I just lost it. My emotions just totally flowed out. I was crying for a solid like 20 minutes or so. And I know it wasn't just the poem. I mean, the poem was absolutely beautiful, but I think I also needed that cathartic release of of the grief and the tears and the missing him and the longing and just kind of remembering everything we've been through and how hard this journey has been at points, especially in the beginning. Because um, it's already easy to kind of lose, lose touch with that sometimes. Um, so overall, you know, it was, it was a really good day and I'm glad I had that moment too of just kind of the grief and the sorrow um, and that you know, release. Cause I think that's healthy too. Cause over time you start to like maybe shut that out a little bit or not shut it out, but just lose touch with it. It softens. Um, and so the next day I had my second OB consultation at the same hospital where I gave birth to Alice and, um, I did okay. And ap- approaching the building, you know, of course was thinking about all these memories, like what it was like to drive away from the hospital without him. Um, And, you know, I don't know if I would necessarily use the word triggering, but definitely, you know, those physical places were, were bringing up different memories and emotions than just even walking, parking in the same parking lot, walking through the same hallways. Um, And thankfully their waiting room was very nice, lots of natural light, not crowded at all, so I got to sit down and didn't have to wait very long. Um, And saw the, got called back into a room, and I could hear the OB who I was supposed to meet with meeting with another patient in the room next door. And she was in there for about, you know, three minutes, which is standard for OBs. Um, And so I was wondering, you know, how, how would my appointment go? So she came in and she didn't necessarily remember me, but she had obviously looked at my chart and knew everything that we'd been through um, and was very sensitive and compassionate about that. And I did tell her that two years ago, to the day I had met her when she came in, um, when she was on shift after the day after Ellis was born, and um, she just acknowledged how hard it must have been for me to even walk into that space, which I really appreciated that she could kind of empathize with me about that. Um, And yeah, I told her that I where I was coming from, that I had been sent here by my OB who can only do a repeat cesarean and I was interested in learning more about VBAC 
And um, so she said, okay, I'm just going to tell you everything, even though I know you've probably done a ton of research yourself and you probably know a lot of this already. And so she proceeded to um, talk about the realities, the risk of uterine rupture. And then I asked her about the placenta accreta and she said, yes, that's a real risk too, but I really think that we should just take this one pregnancy at a time and make the best decision for this pregnancy and then deal with whatever might come later on, later on. And that is also, she was kind of mirroring what my, my current OB had said, uh, let's just focus on this pregnancy and not worry about future pregnancies. Because she said, you know, in her experience, birth is just something you, you can only plan for to a certain extent. There's just so many unknowns. And so she also said, I'm going to make this really easy for you because I know you probably feel like this is this huge decision that you have to make and it's all on your shoulders. And I'm going to take that, take that away. She said, if you were to transfer care to our hospital, we will not induce you. Um, that's just our hospital policy. We will not induce a VBAC. And she said, because of your stillbirth, we also want you to give birth, you know, before that 37 or 38 week mark, which means the only way you could have a VBAC is if you spontaneously went into labor before 37 weeks, which even though I'd never labored before, you know, I understood is very unlikely. And she said, you know, that's highly unlikely. And so she said, if you were to transfer care to us, we would schedule a c-section and then if you came in and you were you know several centimeters dilated at 36 and a half weeks and everything looked okay we would um, try for a v-back but the odds are that's not going to happen and she said that the reason they don't induce is because the rate or the risk of uterine rupture doubles with an induced feedback. Um, and she said, especially because of my history of stillbirth, that's just not something they're willing to risk, which makes a lot of sense to me and made me kind of question, um, the other OB who I had talked with or, or the nurse practitioner and said that they would induce me, um, for a VBAC. So she was just, so like I said, she was very compassionate, but also very straightforward, which I, I really needed and I really appreciated. I kept telling her that. And ultimately she spent at least 30 minutes talking with me, which I was just so grateful for and appreciative of. And, um, she said, you know, I'm going to give you two scenarios. One is that you stay with your current OB and schedule a C-section, which is you know, the only thing that she can offer you. And then you happen to go into labor at 36 and a half weeks, but her hospital's policy won't allow you to have a VBAC. So you have to have a C-section. She said, you know, you might regret not transferring care to us and having that opportunity for a VBAC. The other scenario is that you do transfer care to us and we schedule a C-section, same thing, you go into labor at 36 and a half weeks, and 
you have a uterine rupture. You're going to regret that decision way more. And so that really kind of opened my eyes just to see those two, you know, potential regrets back to back. Um, the way she framed it just really made sense to me. And she also said that in her experience, she's been an OB for a long time. She said when patients lose a baby, it's really difficult for them to come back to the same hospital and give birth to their subsequent baby. She said that she's seen, you know, kind of two different people the or mothers, you know, the first is um, they don't want to go back to that same space, so they immediately transfer care and go to another hospital, another doctor. And the other group, they kind of want this, like, redemptive birth, so they'll go back to the same hospital, back to that same space, and kind of seek this redemption within that space of, like, having a positive birth or the birth that they, like, their ideal birth. Um, and she said that's why a lot of mothers also choose a VBAC is like for that kind of redemption or like proving something to themselves. Um, and she said, you know, to be quite honest, I just don't think it's worth it. I don't think it's worth the emotional stress and anxiety and just kind of being in that same space where you experience such a great trauma. Um, and she said, you know, you might be surprised to be hearing this from me because we're like in general, our practice is extremely supportive of VBAC and, you know, ultimately will support whatever choice you want to make when it comes to if you do want to transfer care here. But she was just really encouraging me to consider that option of like, maybe it's best to stay with my current OB. So yeah, I just, I told her at the very end, like, thank you so much. This has been so helpful. This was just what I needed. And in hindsight, I feel like that first um, OB consult I had, maybe she was just kind of telling me what I wanted to hear. And um, this doctor kind of also alluded to that, that like a lot of OBs or, or other OBs might tell you what you want to hear. And then when it comes down to, you know, the last few weeks of pregnancy, they might put their foot down and say, no, we're going to schedule a C-section or, or kind of change the plan on you. So that's why she was like, I'm just going to tell you straight up right now what I think. Um, and so ultimately, I was very surprised by my, um, I guess, OB tour that week and um, ended up deciding to stay with my current OB, who, again, I love and trust and feel safe in her care. I've been with her for the two years since Ellis was born and... Um, and I'm just now finally comfortable with the idea of a scheduled C-section. Um, everything that this other doctor had said about the risk of uterine rupture doubling with an induction just kind of um, scared me away from the other OB who offered that to me. And I know that that would, when it comes down to the end of the pregnancy, that would probably heighten my anxiety of just like all the unknowns around labor and birth. And, and that OB acknowledged that too. She just said, I've, I've seen it. I've seen how this goes. And the closer you get to that, that mark where you had your first stillbirth, um, and then the closer you get to the birth 
of your subsequent baby, your anxiety is probably going to be higher and you're just going to want to get the baby out safely. So after having all these conversations, I felt so secure in that decision to schedule a C-section and actually started to get really excited about it. Um, you know, we'll know exactly, you know, hopefully if everything goes according to plan, of course, we'll know exactly when the baby will be born and, um, can plan for it. And I also have already had a C-section, so I know what it's like. I know what the recovery is like, whereas with labor, I I don't know what that experience is like. So the idea of that was a little bit scarier. Um, And I talked with Hunter about it, everything, of course, after each appointment, and he felt so much more comfortable with the idea of the scheduled C-section, especially after hearing, you know, about the risks of uterine rupture doubling with induction and everything. Um... And so I called my doula and I had a debrief with her and, um, she was super supportive and said, you know, we'll make a plan for your C-section and we'll make it really special. And, you know, you can do things like play certain song or, um, you know, just, there are little special things that we can do and ways also to include Ellis in that birth experience. So I'm just getting really excited about it and I feel so much peace about all of that because it really was like this kind of weight that was hanging over my head of like feeling like I had to make this big decision of like feedback versus repeat C-section and then that was going to determine also I needed if I needed to like find a new OB which just it felt like a lot of it felt like a lot um so even though I'm kind of back where I started I just feel so much more confident with it with my choice now because I've explored all the other options and it also gave me a deeper understanding of what my my original OB was telling me all along which was basically the same thing this 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 other doctor said but perhaps she this other doctor said it in a more direct way that I needed to hear of like because of the combination of stillbirth plus c-section that makes me kind of a complicated special you know case here where i can't no one wants to let me give birth after 38 weeks and therefore you know a scheduled c-section makes the most sense so yeah ever since then my anxiety has really eased and um Starting around 16 weeks, I started feeling the baby kick um, regularly throughout the day. It was like, you know, became very obvious that that was what I was feeling because the week before at around 15 weeks, I thought I was starting to feel him, but I wasn't sure, you know, whether it was like just my digestion or whatever. Um, And then this past week, I'm now 17 weeks, um, Hunter was actually able to feel the baby kick too by just putting his hand on my belly which oh it's just the best and it it's made us feel so much more connected to him and it gives me so much more reassurance just like I feel him kind of wiggling when I wake up in the morning and I just I feel him throughout the day and in the evening so it makes me not feel the need to have those frequent appointments anymore um just because I'm feeling him kick and so I know once I get into the third trimester, I'm going to be seeing my specialist and my OB both weekly, which I'll have a lot of appointments, which will be good just to have that monitoring and that extra assurance. But for now, um, I feel really at peace with 
having these appointments every couple of weeks and just feeling the baby kick and move um, throughout the day. So yeah, I'm, I'm just so grateful that I'm in this headspace where I can feel peace and connection to him. Um, and I'm really starting to kind of imagine his arrival and even starting to plan like his nursery and kind of um, starting to make a list of, of um, things for our registry online. And I wasn't putting any of those pressures on myself about if I would do that or when that would happen. I just have kind of been rolling with it. And so it feels right now. And I'm glad that I'm in a space where I'm comfortable with that. Because it, you know, once you've lost a baby, it's scary to kind of commit to those things because, you know, Ellis was stillborn the day that my baby shower invitations went out, which just was uh, kind of another layer of trauma because people had already ordered gifts. So like, you know, about a week after he was born and we started getting gifts in the mail. And of course, you know, there was no way for them to reverse it. They ended up finding out what had happened, but it, it had just all happened like at the same time. So, um, I didn't want to have that re experience repeated. So I've thought about maybe we'll do a shower after the baby is born and, and we might still consider that, but for now, it feels good to kind of plan and imagine. Um, so I think I'll stop there because I've already been talking for like 45 minutes and I feel like this is a pretty long episode. Um, I hope this was helpful for you. Um, remember that you're, you're not alone in this journey. It helps me so much to know that um, you're out there following along with me and you might be in a similar space. It, it makes me feel less alone. I hope what I am bringing to you um, gives you peace and hope. Um, so thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. I hope this episode was meaningful for you. To connect with me, you can visit taylorashleybates.com and also find me on Instagram. Please share this podcast with anyone you know who is walking through life after pregnancy loss. Whether they are trying to conceive currently pregnant or parenting after loss. And please subscribe and review this podcast. Your reviews help it to reach more listeners. Until next time, I'm Taylor Bates, sending you peace and hope for your journey.